Many times we need to keep our health in check, but don't know what questions to ask or where to begin. We walk in blindly to our health care provider and walk out none the wiser and maybe even more confused than before. Can you take charge of your health and arm yourself with the questions and preparedness you need? The answer is yes. Welcome to Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs. This program will answer your questions and give you the best practices for facing your medical partner in good health. Now, here's Dr. Susan Downs. Welcome to Occupy Health, and this is Dr. Susan. In our show, we've had many people telling us how to uh, take action on our health. We've had many functional medicine uh, experts who have told us how to look under the hood and find out what's going on and treat the cause rather than the symptoms. So I'm very honored to have an expert today. We have Dr. Sarah Myhill, who is a physician in England, And she is treating people by looking under the hood, looking at the causes, and is doing quite well at that. And everybody is happy with their work. I mean, everybody's quite happy. So she is qualified in medicine with honors from Middlesex Hospital Medical School in 1981. She's focused tirelessly on identifying and treating the underlying causes of health problems, especially the diseases of civilization, which we are beset with in the West. She's worked for the NHS, that's the National Health Service in uh, the UK, and private practice for 17 years. She was the Honorary Secretary of the British Society for Ecological Medicine, which focuses on the causes of diseases and treating through diet, supplements, and avoiding toxic stress. These are all important um, items that we certainly should incorporate in our own path toward wellness. She helps run a lecture at the Society's training course and also lectures regularly on organophosphate poisoning, the problems of silicone, and chronic fatigue syndrome. Her website is www.drmyhill.co.uk. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, such an honor. Anyway... Can you tell us a little bit about your path and what got you on the unique path that you're on of looking under the hood and finding out what's causing our diseases? (laughs) Absolutely. Well, as you have um, uh, said, I'm a a completely conventional um, doctor uh, and had a conventional training and qualified in 1981 and went straight into uh, national health general practice. And what I found in general practice was very different from what I'd been trained for or how I had been trained. And um, it became very clear early on that people wanted to know why they had problems. They didn't want to take symptom-suppressing medication for life. They wanted to know why. And so this had me scurrying back to my books, of course, to, to, to busy to, uh, and shuffle them to see if I could find out the whys. And the whys were not there. And at the same time um, um, as I was working um, um, uh, in general practice, um, I got pregnant. I had my first daughter. And uh, Ruth had the most awful colic. And I can remember my... Uh, thinking, you know, what nurse is causing it? I thought I was doing everything right. She was being breastfed. Uh, I thought I was eating a healthy diet. And I can remember my husband then saying, you know, you're the effing doctor. You sort it out. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I remember reading something, and I cut out all the dairy products in my diet. And within 24 hours, the colic had disappeared. Now, for me, that was an absolute miracle. 
because I had no idea what caused it. Um, there was nothing in the medical textbooks um, to state that. Um, and not only did her colic completely resolve, but so did my chronic sinusitis and rhinitis, which I'd been told was beta-motor rhinitis, i.e. no cause. Nonsense. I now know that allergy to dairy products is the number one cause of, of, of chronic catarrhal conditions, rhinitis, and often asthma as well. So... Through my own experience, um, I suddenly found these wonderful clinical clues. And there was nothing about that in the medical textbooks. And do you know what? There's still nothing about that in the medical textbooks. And um, you could halve the work of ENT surgeons overnight simply by um, having patients cut out dairy products. It's a, that is a very common association. So having established that foods clearly can cause disease for reasons of allergy, I then started looking at other conditions. And guess what? Um, the commonest allergens are the things we're eating all the time, the gluten grains, the dairy products, the yeast. And by doing very simple elimination darts with my patients, I was curing chronic headaches, chronic asthma, chronic arthritis, um, uh, eczema, allergy, and so on. So it was a as you can imagine, it was a, a very exciting time for me personally because suddenly I was learning things that uh, was just nowhere to be found in the medical textbooks. And, um, um, and that's what really put me on, on, on the trail of asking the question why. Now, the biggest problem that I see in clinical practice then and indeed now is chronic fatigue syndrome. And... It is the worst treated condition in Western medicine because the conventional doctors are not asking the question why. They're not looking for why these people are fatigued. They're not looking at the mechanisms by which they can improve energy delivery mechanisms. And initially, I had some success with doing simple elimination diets. For some people, their fatigue turned out to be a pure allergy issue. But there, I now find there's another major problem with diet, um, which is separate from allergy, which is what I call um, carbohydrate intolerance, fermenting gut, sugar addiction. Now, I hardly dare talk about this, Susan, because I'm quite sure you are expert in this and, um, and, and have talked about this a great deal on your show. But the bottom line is that modern diets are making us ill. And the biggest problem is sugars and carbohydrates um, because they, we, the reason we eat them is because they are addictive. We eat them in an addictive way and it's very easy to work out who the carbohydrate addicts are because they have to eat very regularly through the day. They're constantly snacking crisps, sweets, um, bread, fruit. People think fruit is healthy, but fruit is actually a bag of sugar. And um, not only does that upset their blood sugar levels, so their blood sugars are up and down and up and down. Indeed, if you took a video of the blood sugars of a patient who was uh, eating carbohydrates regularly, it would look like the Rocky Mountains. It would be all over the place. And as blood sugars go up and down, so do hormonal levels. There's an outburst of insulin every time the blood sugar goes up, and that lays down, um, that reduces sugar levels by shunting it into fat. And then as soon as the sugar levels start to fall precipitously, the brain panics. It thinks it's running out of fuel. And so there's an outpouring of adrenaline. And it's adrenaline that, that causes high blood pressure, 
um, um, uh, anxiety. So many uh, psychiatric and mental disorders are driven by this adrenaline rush, cardiac palpitations, um, and a host of other symptoms, and, of course, insomnia. So what that means is that the starting point for treating absolutely all medical conditions of the Western world, you know, diabetes, dementia, chronic fatigue syndrome, heart disease, it doesn't matter. The starting point for treating all those conditions and indeed preventing all those conditions is exactly the same. It's the paleo-ketogenic diet. And I'm now coming to the view that that diet is non-negotiable. We should all be doing it. Why? Because that's what evolution intended um, us to be eating. That is, you know, humans evolved over millions of years eating a paleo, i.e. Um, 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 no dairy products, uh, no gluten grains, um, very little yeast, a paleo, ketogenic, i.e. very low carbohydrate diet. We have engines in our um, bodies, little mitochondria, which are meant to be fueled by fat and by fermented fiber, which also produces um, a fat. And if my patients can get onto that diet, and that is the starting point, that will sort probably 70% of problems. Wow, that's a very exciting, concise summary of paths we can take to get well. Last month, we had Dominique D'Agostino, who told us quite a bit about the ketogenic diet, and we've had many other speakers in the past. So I hear several different points in here that diet and particular food sensitivities are important, so we'll get into that. I hear the chronic fatigue syndromes like the canary in the coal mine because we all might have little parts of that going toward illness. So this is something that's very important to us, even though we might be fortunate enough not to have it. Correct. I hear about insulin because most of our speakers have said that rising levels of insulin is certainly a cause of inflammation, oxidative stress, and certainly gets us going down the path toward chronic disease. When we develop insulin resistance, uh, then all of a sudden we're on the path toward diabetes, and yeah. that is associated with every chronic disease. And then you Correct. talk about a adrenaline's being kicked in by all this insulin and that will you know get our sympathetic nervous system going on so we're always on chronic alert that will raise our cortisol which is associated with inflammation in many diseases so um you know uh, being on constant sympathetic alert you know hyper alertness will lead toward yeah. many diseases and absolutely you know, it sounds uh, like a very good, concise summary. So why don't we start well, a little bit with the diet? So each person might be sensitive to different things. I mean, I've, we've had speakers like Tom O'Brien say that nobody can process gluten. We just don't have the enzymes. So the, he recommends all people get off of it. I mean, even in Europe where the, the gluten's not as processed, well, I, I'm, funnily enough, I was at a conference recently and the collective view um, of the audience and the speakers by the time um, uh, the day had been uh, uh, c- completed was that modern wheats are now so toxic they should be for animals only. We shouldn't be giving them to humans because um, a gluten is, is, is um, very difficult for the body to deal with in process. It's highly allergenic. Um, Car- wheat are high in carbohydrates. We overwhelm our ability to digest and absorb that, and we end up with what I call upper fermenting gut. And upper fermenting gut, I believe, drives many pathologies. 
And of course, wheats are high in natural, uh, in, in lectins, which are essentially plant toxins. And some people don't deal with um, uh, lectins. So wheat is, is a very toxic food, and I don't think any human should be eating that. Well, there is uh, a nutritionist, Chen Ben Asher, that just wrote a book on is gluten, uh, you know, free enough. And she was saying that along with wheat sensitivity, that will translate to oatmeal, it will translate to teff and various non-gluten grains, so that it sounds like all grains could be a problem. For some people? Well, I think so, too. I think so, too. And um, um, uh, uh, the subject I I mentioned a moment ago was the upper fermenting gut, and uh, that is a major problem. Again, let me just describe briefly what happens here. Um, The human gut is almost unique in the mammal world because we can cope with such a wide range of foods. And essentially, the upper gut should be a sterile, acidic, digesting gut, a little bit like my pet dog or a cat, um, in order to to, um, deal with meat and fat and fish and protein. And then the lower gut is a fermenting gut, like um, a horse or a cow, and that allows us to ferment fiber to um, make short-chain fatty acids, uh, which is another sort of fuel. Now, we can also manage some carbohydrates. And, of course, that ability to run on two fuels has great evolutionary benefits because primitive man, as he migrated away from the equator, had to survive the winter. And, of course, there would have been a natural harvest as fruit trees ripened, as natural berries ripened, as uh, root vegetables um, uh, came available and so on. And so he would have had a glut of carbohydrates during the autumn. And our bodies are incredible. We can cope with um, um, carbohydrates. We can digest them. We can absorb them. We can turn them into fat. And that's what insulin does. And that means we get fat in the autumn. Now, that is a very desirable state of affairs. It's survival value for the winter. Fat keeps us warm and um, fat is a food source. But, of course, those foods would have run out. Um, uh, as the autumn came to an end. And primitive man would have reverted back to a ketogenic diet. Um, So he'd have reverted back to being a hunter again. So most of the year he was in ketosis, bar this window of time during the autumn, which afforded survival value. Now, the problem nowadays is we live in permanent autumn. We can eat those foods all year round if we wish. And because those foods are addictive and we eat them in an addictive way, We do. So we end up in permanent autumn mode, permanent um, uh, metabolic syndrome with all the problems that go with that. So it's it's, it's almost a function of our amazing um, biology that we can do that. Um, But but now for modern man, it's an absolute disaster because if you start fermenting um, food in the upper gut um, because we overwhelm your ability to digest it. If you start to ferment, it will be fermented by bacteria and it will be fermented by yeast. Now, I was taught at medical school that um, the gut is full of bacteria and yeast um, and there they remain in the gut. We now know that's not true. Bacteria and yeast in the gut easily get into the bloodstream and that's called bacterial translocation. Not in the great numbers to cause septicemia and acute illness, but they get into the bloodstream and they have the potential to drive inflammatory 
processes at distal sites. So if those bacteria get stuck in the joints, for example, then they can drive inflammation there, which causes arthritis. If those um, microbes get stuck in the skin, I suspect that venous ulcers in the legs are driven by fermenting microbes in the gut. I suspect chronic urticaria is that. And irritable bladder, for sure. I, I, I don't know what you have seen in your clinical practice, but in my practice, I see many women with what I call irritable bladders. So they have all the symptoms of chronic cystitis. But when their urine is tested, the doctors say, oh, no, no, there aren't any bacteria there. Um, um, uh, it must be all in the mind. It must be, you know, psychological. But the, the, the point is, is that the definition of a urinary tract infection are, the number, are less than 10,000 microbes per mil. If you've got 9,000 microbes per mil and you have sensitized to them, you've got allergic to them, then you will get all the symptoms of cystitis. So... Um, um, the, uh, the, the fermented gut say, explains many pathologies. And even more exciting, there is a researcher in Japan called Nishihara who postulates that where there is fermenting gut, those microbes can get into the brain. Um, and in the brain, um, they have the potential to ferment brain neurotransmitters into other substances like LSD and amphetamine. And if, in fact, he is correct, then this um, would explain the whole base of psychosis. And guess what? What's the best treatment to treat psychosis, schizophrenia, or manic depression? Um, a, a ketogenic diet. Why? Starve out the microbes in the gut because the microbes cannot ferment um, fat and only the friendly microbes can ferment fiber. Starve them out in the gut. Starve them out in the brain. And normal brain um, uh, neurotransmitters um, return. And the psychosis disappears. And there's, as I'm sure you're aware, there's lots of wonderful clinical experience showing that that is the case. Again, you're probably aware of the ketogenic diet being used to treat epilepsy. Works fantastically well. I've now had two patients that I've seen in the last, all three years with malignant um, brain tumors, glioblastoma, and the tumor has not progressed with that patient having a ketogenic diet. So... The ketogenic diet is a very powerful tool. We're, 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 we're getting back to our primitive roots, if you like. We are um, re-establishing normal biochemistry in the body by this very simple intervention. Wow. Many, I would like to emphasize, many speakers have emphasized that health starts with the gut. I think people thousands of years ago had figured that out. I mean, yeah. many speakers have said that if you've got a permeable intestinal barrier, leaky gut, that your brain is leaky. So if things are seeping out into your blood system, then all sorts of nasties are going to get into your brain. And then um, speakers have said, uh, such as Ari Vajani, that uh, when you get undigested proteins going into your blood system, you get all sorts of antibodies against it. And through molecular mimicry or just cross-reacting to other substances, we develop all sorts of autoimmune disease. For example, Correct. gluten is very closely, I mean, genetically similar to thyroid cells, McKinsey, yeah. that's a balanced cells in the brain and islet cells. So there's such a thing called glutenataxia, and a lot of people with thyroiditis have sensitivity to gluten, so it just goes on. Another interesting point that comes to mind is Anthony Haynes had done a lot of work about like particular viruses and bugs 
that they could create all sorts of havoc. And I think most people are overlooking this. And he has a test where you can find out if these, not only if they're in your body, but if they're creating havoc and something you need to address. So the gut has been, by most speakers, the beginning of where health goes. And you, and if you've got the fermenting in the wrong place, such as the small intestine versus the long intestine, uh, yeah. that is a serious problem. And it's a start of, I think, most of our health problems. So I'd like yeah. to reaffirm those points. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more with you. you know, and in fact, now I say, I think I mentioned earlier, um, the P, P, the paleogenic diet, it's non-negotiable. You, you know, you have to start with that. And, you know, patients have quite, uh, um, um, strong arguments with you. Oh, I've always done this, you know, oh, surely this is a healthy food. And I'm afraid I'm really tough these days. I don't compromise on diet anymore. I say, really, if you're not prepared to do the diet, you're wasting my time and you're wasting your time as well and you're just postponing the moment at which you're going to recover. So, yeah, the diet is very, very, very important. I have to say there's another very useful tool that I found for treating the fermenting gut and that's good old vitamin C. Now, I'm sure, again, you have many speakers talk about vitamin C and, of course, the greatest advocate of such was Linus Pauling. And um, he reckoned that uh, an, an, you know, human beings need between 4 and 15 grams a day. The reason we need vitamin C, the reason that vitamin C is a vitamin, is because we can't make it ourselves. There, there are only um, a very few mammals. It's humans, guinea pigs, and fruit bats that can't make their own vitamin C. So the reason why my little dog, Nancy, doesn't get scurvy from eating a pure meat diet is because she can make her own vitamin C. And if you scale up from um, other animals um, how much vitamin C we should have, you get to Linus Pauling's figure of about 4 to 15 grams per day. Now, vitamin C is a fantastically useful tool for the upper fermenting gut. Why? Vitamin C contact kills all microbes. It kills all viruses, all bacteria, all yeast. It's a fantastically useful tool, but it's completely non-toxic to human cells. As I'm sure you know, you could inject um, 100 or 200 grams of vitamin C intravenously, um, no problem whatsoever. Uh, There is a rare condition called glucose-6-phosphate deficiency, which um, you have to test for, but for most, 99% of people, no problem whatsoever. Now, we can use vitamin C by mouth to treat the upper fermenting gut. Why? It contact kills everything. So the key here is you adjust the dose of vitamin C so that it kills the grams of unfriendly microbes fermenting in the upper gut, but not the kilograms of friendly fermenting microbes in the lower gut, i.e. the colon. And it's a very easy thing to do. Anybody can do this. It's a very safe thing to do. And it's called taking vitamin C to bowel tolerance. So you up the dose. So if I've got a patient I think has got fermenting gut, uh, yes, they do the paleoketogenic diet. And then we up the dose of vitamin C and up the dose of vitamin C and keep going until they get diarrhea and then pull back from that. And you need to take about 80 to 90% of your bowel tolerance dose of vitamin C probably for life to optimize your health. Um, and um, uh, it's... Uh, and I. Again, I'm always asking myself the question, why? What is the mechanism by which vitamin C works? And the interesting thing about vitamin C is that uh, animals, um, the starting point for animals to make vitamin C is glucose. It's a four-enzyme step that takes you to vitamin C. So vitamin C and glucose, they look 
similar biochemically. And I suspect the way that vitamin C works is that if you starve microbes of their food source by doing a ketogenic diet, i.e. stop feeding them sugar and carbohydrates, they look for an alternative food source and they see vitamin C. And of course, biochemically, it looks like sugar. So they grab vitamin C and they absorb it, and, but it doesn't work as a fuel. You can't burn vitamin C and they literally starve to death. And I think that is the same mechanism by which vitamin C is such a great treatment for cancer. Because if you, because cancer cells, as you know, they differ from human cells because cancer cells can only run on sugar. They can't run on fat. They can't run on fiber. They have to have sugar or carbohydrates there. So if you starve those cancer cells of sugar by doing a ketogenic diet, and then you take vitamin C to bowel tolerance, the cancer cells will grab the vitamin C because it looks like sugar, but they can't use it as a, as a fuel, and that kills them. And so this two-pronged approach, um, starve cells, use vitamin C to bowel tolerance, is a fantastic treatment for fermenting gut, for cancer, and for almost any infection you care to mention. So um, I use that tool very regularly in my practice and to great effect. How fascinating. I mean, those two uh, tips right there can help most of us with a lot of our ailments and underlying conditions. A ketogenic diet and uh, vitamin C uh, up to about 80 or 90 percent of bowel tolerance. How fascinating. So listeners, mark that down. It's very important. But back to diet. So there are other food sensitivities. It's an individual thing. Some people might, I mean, there's a person I talked to yesterday that was sensitive to olive oil. So she got rid of all the gluten but didn't get better. So there are other food sensitivities that the individual might be involved in. Should we look at those? Yes. Yes, that's correct. I mean, and um, I, of course, I got interested in this whole area of medicine um, um, through allergy. And um, uh, my first 10 years, I was trying all sorts of elimination diets and rotation diets and uh, rare food diets and all sorts to help people. But what I find now is that if you get um, the carbohydrate download very low and you take big dose of vitamin C, and of course, vitamin C in big doses is an antihistamine that greatly mitigates allergy problems. So, um, um, I mean, again, in my early days, in the 1980s, uh, I used a desensitization technique called enzyme potentiated desensitization. I used to work with the, the man who invented it, Dr. Len McEwen, and um, it was a very good treatment for switching off allergies, and I still use it now for some of my patients, but... It's very, it's, I mean, I used to use it a lot then because it was a tool that I had and, 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 and food allergies were common. But now I use it less and less and less because I find that all these other things, you know, the paleoketogenic diet, the vitamin C to bowel tolerance, um, getting rid of toxic metals and pesticides, you know, avoiding vaccinations, you know, all these things that we know switch the immune system on oh, and correcting adrenal and thyroid function. Adrenal and thyroid they are glands, they have profound effects on um, uh, inflammation and the immune system. When you get all that right, I don't say the allergy problem disappears, but it's greatly ameliorated and mitigated. And um, I find people can often develop tolerance um, once they have established on those other regimes. Okay, so for the person that doesn't have the luck of going to a functional medicine practitioner, ketogenic diet, because sugar causes all sorts of ills. I don't know if we're going to get into time with that, but it's very inflammatory, setting off oxidative stress, mitochondrial problems, every 
bad thing you yeah. can imagine. Yeah. So vitamin C and then correcting the thyroid and adrenals. Is there any way a person can do that on their own or get some hints or yeah. do we need to go to Absolutely. a practitioner? I mean, um, you know, what, no, I'm, as, as you probably gathered, you know, I'm an old crone now and I know I, I've just worked out I can't cure the world on my own. <laughs> I can't see everybody. So what I'm doing is I'm developing techniques that people can do themselves. And this is why I started writing books. I started writing books for the last few years because I want to give people the rules of the game and the tools of the trade to allow them to sort themselves out without having to go to doctors or therapists. Yes, sometimes therapists are very helpful to advise them, but um, um, uh, I'm trying to say simple tools like ketogenic diet, like vitamin C, but with respect for to thyroid and adrenal problems, what I find is that the glandulars are very helpful. Now, thyroid problems are common. We can easily diagnose them with um, um, a, um, a combination of blood tests, core temperatures, clinical pictures, symptoms, response to treatment. But the very first thyroid preparation that was ever used during the 1930s was dried um, animal thyroid glands. And guess what? That is still the best thyroid treatment. And, what if you have um, antibodies against thyroid and Hashimoto's? Oh, well, that would be antibodies against the thyroid gland in the human. What I'm talking about is using glandulars from animals, and we're very lucky we can um, uh, source them from organic um, pigs, so it's a good quality product, and, um, and, and, and give people simply dry, natural dry thyroid. Uh, and it comes under lots of names. It's called armor thyroid. It's called desiccated thyroid. But um, it's also called pork glandulars. And um, um, they're all the same thing, fundamentally. And they they're don't simply... cross-react with the human thyroid and the, uh, the antibodies we might already have? Well, the antibodies are another issue. The, the antibodies that the human has to their own thyroid gland um, may have destroyed their thyroid gland and that's why they need supplements from the outside world but the the the, the thyroid glandulars that you can get from pigs you the the, the, the body um, um, can deal with them in the gut the active hormone contained within is absorbed into the bloodstream and that will correct blood levels reliably well and and restore normal hormonal function, essentially. People might have to do a little bit of a balancing act as to when they take them in the day. And um, with the thyroid, I tend to give about half the daily dose on rising, about a quarter at lunchtime and about a quarter late afternoon, or maybe half in the morning, half at lunch. People can balance that up themselves. But the, the glandulars, anybody can get them. You can get them online, and, um, and people can use those intelligently to correct their own um, uh, thyroid problems. So would they do, so, I mean, thyroid something is pretty tricky. I mean, if you take too much, uh, you, you know, you, you flip your T waves, get high pulse rate, etc. So would they do take morning thyroids, such as a, a morning temperatures such as the thermometer under the armpits and they'll monitor symptoms? What do they do to um, make sure they okay. don't go amok? Okay, well, there are two um, ways that I monitor. I, first of all, I do blood tests, and um, I've set up a website called Natural Health Worldwide where anybody can get these blood tests um, um, uh, online. And um, you just need a finger drop of blood, and that will um, go to the lab, and the results come back. Now, I call that the course tuning. That tells the patient if 
Um, you know, where their blood levels are running. Are they at low end of range? Are they at top end of range? Are they too high, too low? So that gives us, the, as I call it, the coarse tuning. And then you can do what I call the fine tuning using the core temperature. Now, people think that core temperature is just a measure of thyroid. Not so. I think there are four big players when it comes to energy delivery mechanisms. And an analogy I like to use, which my patients understand very easily, is the car analogy. And for your car to go, you've got to have the right fuel in the, in the tank, back to the ketogenic diet. You then have to have the mitochondrial engine that can burn that fuel. And as you may know, that's my special area of interest, mitochondria. Um, and in fact, I... They are central, that's centrally important in chronic fatigue syndrome. And I wrote a book called Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. It's mitochondria, not hypochondria, because we know that they, the chronic fatigues have a mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, and then you have um, the thyroid accelerator pedal and the adrenal gearbox. Now, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, it's very important that the body gears energy requirements to energy production very closely because if you don't gear it very closely then energy might be wasted and of course you can't afford to waste energy during the winter because you would lose energy as heat and you would starve to death but on the other hand if a saber-toothed tiger jumps out of you and you've got to run the fastest mile you've ever run in your life you want maximal energy production with thyroid hormones poured out adrenal hormones poured out to allow you to um, raise your game so, we have those four players, as I say, the fuel that goes um, in the tank, uh, the mitochondrial engine, the thyroid, and the adrenal gland. And the sum total of those four processes is your core temperature. So, if you're generating a lot of energy, for whatever reason, then your core temperature will rise. You, you look at athletes who are running. What do they have to do? They have to sweat like mad in order to lose all that excess heat. Uh, conversely, when we're asleep and, um, um, uh, and all those processes are shut down, our core temperature falls by maybe you know, one or one and a half degree. So core temperature is a measure not just of the thyroid, not just of the diet, not just of the, of the mitochondria or the adrenals, but all four things. So for core temperature to be correctly interpreted, you have to have all, you have to be mindful of those four issues. So um, before I start anybody on thyroid or adrenal supplements, they've got to do the ketogenic diet because you've got to get the right fuel in the tank. Those people who are very fatigued almost always have a mitochondrial issue. And we're very lucky in this country because I have a specialist laboratory that can do mitochondrial function tests. But even if you can't get the tests done, I now know there are about four or five supplements which will improve mitochondrial function reliably well. It's detailed in my book, CoQ10, D-ribose, magnesium, vitamin B3, carnitine. They're the, the, you know, the, the common rate-limiting steps. Again, if there's problems with, um, despite that, then it may be the mitochondria going slow because they're poisoned by something. And that's where the tests of toxicity are very helpful. Things like urine elements, the DMSA, or um, uh, Genova do um, um, uh, uh, urine and blood tests that measure levels of phthalates, organophosphates, or other such toxins in the body. So having got the diet in place and the mitochondria up and running, we can then use the core temperature to assess thyroid and adrenal function. Now, 
Broadly speaking, the thyroid gland determines your average core temperature. So I like people to take several measurements over the day and work out the average. And um, if their average temperature <coughs> is um, um, 36, you know, 36.5, um, 35.5, if it's, if it's low, then that is typical of poor thyroid function. And then we look at the, by how much the temperature fluctuates through the day. So it should fluctuate with maybe 0.2 or 0.3 degree either side of the average. If it's fluctuating a lot, then that's typical of an adrenal problem. And um, that we can correct with adrenal glandulars, just in the same way that we use thyroid glandulars to treat the thyroid issue. So the core temperature is very useful for fine-tuning the dose of thyroid and of adrenals. And um, if at any point one gets stuck, we're not sure where you are, then of course, yes, you can do the blood test of thyroid, you can do a saliva test to look at um, adrenal function, and that gives you a handle on where you're at. But usually... Once, you know, you get a bit of a feel for it um, and people know what their symptoms are and where, how they're acting, normally they can sort it out for themselves. What a beautiful roadmap of health. And it's so simply and elegantly stated that, I mean, that is quite impressive. That would be something that we all can work with. And we've got your many books as guides, and we'll talk about those later. So that is quite impressive. And you also mentioned toxins as a big miscreant that's causing problems. Can you tell us more about the toxins? Yes, absolutely. Um, um, As you know, we live in 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 a nasty, toxic, polluted world. Whether we like it or not, we are all poisoned. Thankfully, the body can deal with poisons and toxins to a certain extent. Broadly speaking, um, they fall into two, I think, in two groups. First of all, there's the pesticides and volatile organic compounds, which um, are ever-present in our food, ever-present in our environment. And um, now I can measure those by doing a fat biopsy um, um, at Acumen Laboratories. But in America, I think Genova, they do a core profile, which does um, bloods and urine. And that would give you a pretty good idea if you are Um, had a toxic load of of pesticides or volatile organic compounds. Now, the important thing about that is that we can get rid of them reliably well just with sweating regimes. So the idea here is that these toxins are in our fat, and of course our brain is full of fat, and um, all our um, organs contain fat. But if we get hot in a sauna or in a hot bath, or maybe if if you've got the energy, go for a run, then you literally... Um, shake up the, the molecules, you boil them off, they come through the skin and they um, um, stay in the lipid layer on the surface of the skin. So you get hot and then you go and shower and you wash off those dirty oils or those dirty fats if you like um, and that reduces your load. And then you do it again and then you do it again. And um, this Interestingly, this was demonstrated first by Bill Ray, who's um, an ecological doctor in in Texas. He he published a study that came out in the Journal of Nutritional Medicine in the 1990s showing how these sweating regimes take out volatile organic compounds and pesticides reliably well. I've now collected about 33 patients, I think I've got, where we've done all the tests of toxicity before and after. And now I don't bother to um, um, do so many tests because 
I know this technique works reliably well. And a rough rule of thumb is that 50 heating regimes, 50 saunas or 50 hot baths with Epsom salts or 50, you know, um, 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 runnings and getting hot and sweaty will halve your total load. And the, and the load of, of, of chemicals comes out of the body exponentially. So 50 will halve it, another 50 will get you to a quarter, another 50 will get you to an eighth, and so on. You can never get rid of every last toxin. Why? Because um, we live in a polluted world and, um, uh, and we're, we're constantly being toxed up. I mean, the other side of that is, is we've got to avoid these things. And I'm sure you've, you've spoke to a lot about this on the show. But the cleaner you can live, the better. Avoiding the pesticides. If you can eat organic food, fantastic. Household cleaning agents are a major cause of toxicity. Um, cosmetics are a major cause of toxicity. Um, people imagine that it's only things that farmers use that are a problem. Not so. There are many any contaminants um, with, within our own homes. Um, and if the bottom line is, if you can smell something, and even perfumes, if you can smell it, it's in the brain. Why? Because the olfactory nerve that supplies the no- nose is an extension of the brain. And um, as, as, as we all know, you know, some smells can have you know, profound effects on the brain. Um, 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 so, you know, s- Things get into the brain very easy is what I'm trying to say. So that's the volatile organic compounds and the pesticides. And then we have the toxic metals. And heavy metal poisoning, again, it's becoming increasingly common. Why? Dental amalgam fillings, um, aluminium in deodorants and antiperspirants and cooking pans, um, cadmium from uh, cigarette smoke, um, uh, lead from lead pipes. And, of course, we used to have leaded petrol no longer now. But in order to diagnose uh, toxic metals, it's no good just doing a hair analysis or just doing a urine sample. You won't see them. Because once these toxic metals get into the body, they get stuck there. They get stuck in the heart. They get stuck in the brain. They get stuck in the kidneys um, um, and uh, bone marrow. So you have to use a chelating agent to get them out. Now, the one that I use, and you can get it online, is called DMSA. Um, if you Google Captima, um, anybody can get it online. And the way to test this is, um, is we do it, with a, do it with a urine test. So empty the bladder, take DMSA at the rate of about 15 milligrams per kilogram body weight. So if you're um, a 100-kilogram person, then you're going to be taking 1,500 um, milligrams. Collect all the urine for six hours and then send an aliquo off a sample off to a lab, which might be Genova Laboratories or Biolab um, here in, in England. And um, that will show what toxic metals you've got. And um, I very often find people with you know, high levels. I mean, I just saw a lady the other day who had developed um, atrial fibrillation. And guess what? She had extremely high levels of lead. I don't know what you see in America, but we're seeing epidemics of, of cardiac dysrhythmias and tachydysrhythmias and atrial fibrillations. And much of that is due to toxic metals. So, you know, that would be an absolutely essential test if somebody presented with that problem. And how do we get rid of toxic metals? In exactly the same way as we do the test. We know these chelating agents grab heavy metals very well and pull them out through the urine. They also pull out friendly minerals. So once a week, you take a dose of DMSA, 50 milligrams per kilogram, and then the rest of the week, you rescue the body with friendly minerals. Um, and, and I like 
all my patients have a good multi-mineral that's got a selection of, you know, magnesium, zinc, copper, selenium, chromium, boron, and so on, you know, all the important ones. So these are two detox techniques that anybody can do. You don't need a specialist doctor. You don't need to uh, uh, intervene in therapy. You can do it yourself at home with the rules of the game, as I call it, and the tools of trade. And that's what I'm trying to do with my books. I'm trying to give people the knowledge and power they need to sort themselves out. Why? Because the doctors aren't doing it. The doctors are just adding to the toxic load by using symptom-suppressing medication, short-term gain, long-term pain. Wow. What a, again, a beautiful summary of how to deal with toxins. I mean, you've given so much information that if people could listen to this, we could help make ourselves so much better. One interesting thing is that lead accumulates in the bones. So when women start going through menopause, this starts creeping out of the bones into the body. Uh, so I think uh, women have to be particularly careful when after they go through menopause, correct? Yes, that would be a very reasonable thing to say. And again, um, um, uh, I see lots of patients with um, osteoporosis. And osteoporosis is its not just at the menopause. It can uh, occur at any time of life. But um, osteoporosis is part of metabolic syndrome. It's part of the sugar issue. And I've now collected uh, 22 patients who have been diagnosed with osteoporosis on bone density scan. And we have treated them with all the tools we've been talking about. So paleoketogenic diet, um, um, get rid of their fermenting gut, because if you've got a fermenting gut, you can't absorb minerals. Uh, The minerals just feed the bugs in the gut instead of feeding you, and um, you need an acid stomach to absorb minerals. Um, By correcting the adrenal and thyroid function, and um, a mineral that I use a lot of to treat um, osteoporosis is strontium. Strontium looks very much like calcium. It's a close relative of calcium. And it's a little bit, I always liken it to, it's a little bit like putting a bit of carbon into an iron, um, uh, something that's iron, and you turn it into steel. And strontium makes bones more dense. It makes them much more tough, and it reduces fracture rates very rapidly. So that combination, the diet, um, um, the vitamin C for the fermenting gut, the minerals, and extra strontium, sort out the adrenals, and the bone density will come back up again. It improves. Now, again, I don't like doing bone density scans on my patients because that involves radiation. But, and I'm sure you have this in America, you can get a very good measure of bone density using ultrasound on the heel of the foot. And in this country, we have, you don't have to, because ultrasound is not um, um, uh, ionizing radiation, anybody can use it. And osteopaths in this country can use um, a very simple um, heel ultrasound test to measure bone density. And you can do that. You could do it every day if you wanted to, no problem at all. So I get my patients to get heel bone density scan. It only costs 40 pounds, which probably translates to about $60 in America. And you can see exactly what your bone density is. And then you can watch it improving as you put the regimes in place. Would you recommend against taking calcium supplements? There is no evidence that calcium supplements um, prevents osteoporosis. In fact, calcium supplements um, can make osteoporosis worse. And there was a study in the BMJ published a few years ago that showed that if you ate a lot of dairy products, that increased your risk of osteoporosis. And the reason for that is that magnesium is just as important as calcium. 
But calcium and magnesium, as you know, they're very similar minerals. They, they, they look similar at a molecular level, and they compete with each other for absorption. So if you take a lot of calcium, you block your absorption of magnesium, and you will develop osteoporosis because you're magnesium deficient. Now, the key to this is vitamin D, because vitamin D greatly improves the absorption of calcium and magnesium from the gut, and as importantly, it ensures its deposition in bone. So vitamin D is the key, but again, the recommended daily amounts of vitamin D are set too low. And my view is that everybody should be taking at least 5,000 international units daily of vitamin D. Now, um, the recommended daily amount is about 800. It's pathetically small. Now, just think, how did primitive man get vitamin D? He got vitamin D from sunshine. And if you have full body exposure to good quality Mediterranean sunshine for about an hour, the body will make about 10,000 international units of vitamin D. So, you know, who died from an hour's exposure of sunshine you know, a day? Nobody. You know, the point is vitamin D is incredibly safe. And up to 10,000 IU daily, there's never been any examples of toxicity, high calcium, problems or whatever. You can only do good. And again, as I'm sure you know, vitamin D um, is a very important modulator of the immune system. It's anti-inflammatory. It damps down inflammation. And as you know, so many Western diseases are associated with inflammation, which is often sugar-driven. So again, it's tipping things back in our favor again. So vitamin D is an absolute essential for everybody. I also understand that the long-acting medications that are supposed to prevent osteoporosis makes very brittle bones and can have a bad outcome. Oh, do you mean the, the bone builders like Ditronel and, and the like? Well, I don't know. I mean, Sally Fields is on the TV all the time advertising these things. Oh, dear. Well, it's the old story. And you don't need me to tell you this. Follow the money. Now, the trouble for the, the, the drug companies is they are running out of diseases to treat because they develop a drug and, um, uh, and then it comes out of patent. And once it's come out of patent, they can't make any money. So they, they're looking for new diseases all the time. And um, uh, osteoporosis has become a new disease in the last 20 years, partly driven by drug companies wanting to sell osteoporosis drugs. The same is true of cholesterol. You know, cholesterol has never, ever been a problem. Cholesterol is not a cause of arterial disease. It's a symptom of arterial disease. But guess what? Correct. Um, you know, they put out a very simple message. Um, you know, that apparently, high-fat diets cause high cholesterol that cause heart disease. Nonsense. But it's a very simple message. Treatment gives statins. You know, my and other things that are concerns is statins that you know, Statin deplete CoQ10 and adiponectin lead straight to diabetes, so we have to be careful there. I mean, antacids deplete stomach acid, which you mentioned as being crucial, so we have to yes. think a lot about what we take. Check out my film, which is called The Big Secret on Amazon Prime, and we go more into some of these topics. So anyway, we've got also another thing on detox I mean skin brushing is something it sounds like it would be helpful since all these toxins are coming to the surface if we brush our skin uh, toward the, uh, the heart that can help with detox as well uh, we have four minutes left so I'd like you to make any summarizing points uh, we can talk about your books you've got sustainable medicine and you've got 
Prevent and Cure Diabetes, and you've got other books as well. So what would you like to tell the audience in the last four minutes? Well, I'm very excited about a book I've just finished, and I think Chelsea Green will bring it out um, uh, in due course, and I've called it The Infection Game. And, And the subtitle is Life is an Arms Race. And the idea here is that you and I are a free lunch for all these microbes to make themselves at home in our very comfortable body. And um, so we should be, and, and we now know that most pathologies, dementia, heart disease, and cancer are infection-driven. Most of these pathologies have a microbe that's associated with it. And why, how do those microbes get into our body? Because we're eating high-sugar, high-carbohydrate diets, and we're feeding them. So by uh, the, so the starting point for treating any infection, any chronic disease, uh, is, dare I say it, the paleoketogenic diet, vitamin C to bowel tolerance, and so on. But I detail all these ideas, I hope, much more clearly in the book, The Infection Game. Um, I say it's yet to be published, but I'm excited, and um, it'll be a fun book to talk about um, should you ever want to ask me again. Oh, I'd have you on every week if you want. I mean, you're phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, uh, you, you summarize it all so beautifully while the rest of us take years to assimilate the knowledge that you could just summarize in 10 minutes. Well, that's because I spend my whole life doing that because I'm tr- treating normal people um, who need to be able to understand the principles very quickly because I'm asking people to do difficult diets, to do difficult detox regimes. And if they don't understand why they've got to do them, then the imperative to do such just melts away. So they have to have a very clear understanding of what's going on, and then they will go and do anything. And when they do anything, boy, then they get results. Okay. Well, we're we're coming down to like one and a half minutes. Any final point uh, telling people how to get a hold of you and your books? And uh, I really want to get the word out on this. Most of my um, information is available free on my website, which is drmyhill.co.uk. But the that has evolved. That website has evolved over twenty years. Now, I, the recent stuff that I write in my books, my publisher, understandably, won't let me put on the website. <laughs> so oh. the books contain it in the most um, concise and understandable form. So um, please you know, buy the books or borrow the books or steal the books and, um, and sort yourself out before it's too late. Well, uh, this has been phenomenal, and I hope that our listeners have some keys so they can start their wellness path. Uh, without the frustrations that most people have. So in summary, I would advise people to go to Dr. Myhill's website, read her books, uh, search out information, share it with your physician and clinician, share it with each other so we can get better, and above all, be well. Thank you for listening. Occupy Health with Dr. Susan Downs can be heard live every Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Here's to better health for you this week. We